Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. So, uh, yeah, let's let's dive right into it. I have a lot I want to get into today, and I want to make sure we have time to get through it. But before we we dive into the, the topic at hand, let's review a little bit about where we've been in this Good Church series so far. This is becoming harder and harder as we continue. We're in week six. We have two more weeks to go. Let's review to how, uh, how we've gotten here. So we're talking about what it means to live a church culture out that pursues God's goodness. What does that look like? And how do we be intentional about forming a culture or a community that reflects the goodness of God and resists what is called raw, the, the bad, the wicked, the toxic that can often leak into our communities? So we're talking about what is tov, Tov is the good word for, for Hebrew, or Hebrew for good, and Ra is the, the Hebrew word for wicked, toxic, bad. So we've looked at a few of these things. We've looked at four so far, four values and four things to resist. So the first one we looked at was we resist narcissism and value empathy. We resist false narratives and value truth. We resist power by fear and value grace. We resist institution creep and value people first culture. A people first culture. That was last week's. So this week we're going to introduce our next one. We resist loyalty culture and value justice. We resist loyalty culture and value justice. Now, this is a tricky one because... This really encapsulates the last four values into one. And, but it is a unique dynamic that we have to talk about within a, a church context. Because loyalty is tof. There is goodness when it comes to loyalty. We might call it faithfulness is another word that we use to describe loyalty that might be in a, a tov nature. You know, we all have loyalty to one thing or another. Right? How many of you are kook fans? Even after yesterday. Right? You're like, yes, we are, we are loyal to our Cougs. Good seasons, bad seasons. I've been a Broncos fan for many years. I understand the pain and hurt, as you guys do. You know, we have loyalty to brands. How many of you guys brushed your teeth with Colgate this morning? Most of us did, right? I hope you did, at least, right? Brush your teeth, at least. Right? We, we choose loyalty to certain things, and a lot of times we don't even know why we choose the loyalty that we have. Sometimes it's just something we grew up doing, it's a habit that we've developed, whatever that might be. So loyalty, in the right context, is a very good tove thing. You know, loyalty is built on trust, it's built on sacrificial love, it's built on a dependency. There, there's a sense of, of loyalty that is a part of faithfulness. You know, spouses, when they are faithful to one another, that is a tove thing. When they look at, when they sacrifice one for one another, they submit to one another, when they love one another, when they care about the, the needs of the other before, he, before themselves becomes a, a tov thing. You know, when we put our faith in Jesus, the idea of, of pistis in Greek is, captures the idea of loyalty, this faithful submissiveness to our king, to our Lord. We trust him. We depend on him. Therefore, it is tov. It is good in nature. But we have also in our world a sense of toxic loyalty that can be raw, that can bring destruction, that can bring division, that can bring sickness into our communities. So let's talk about toxic loyalty culture first. 
So toxic loyalty culture is where loyalty is demanded rather than gained. Where trust is removed quickly and conditional on one party's expectation. And where the loyalty seems to be one-sided. So it's loyalty that is demanded rather than gained. It is removed quickly if you don't meet the expectations of one party within the situation. And where it seems to be a little bit more one-sided. Where you might just be pouring out your loyalty but you don't see it reciprocated within the relationship. And this is what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to resist as a church community is the idea of loyalty culture. And there's a, there's a story in the Old Testament that I think captures this idea very well. And it may be one that you're not familiar with. I don't know how much time you guys spend in 1 Samuel. It's not a book that a lot of people spend time reading daily. But there is a great story within it. And to set the stage, it's going to be 1 Samuel 18, chapter 18 through 20. I'm not going to read all two chapters for you. But let me set the stage. So at this part in the story, Saul has decided that he is going to kill David. King David. This is before David is King David. Because Saul is jealous of what David is doing. This is where the poem, you know, Saul kills his thousands and David kills his tens of thousands. Right? Some of you may have heard that phrase in that song that the Israelites used to sing. So David was a great warrior and Saul became jealous and angry of the of superiority of David in a lot of ways. And likely sees the, the writing on the wall a little bit that David is the better king. That he is the, the better person for this position and most likely will take it from Saul. And so Saul has a lot of different types of uh, conspiracies to try to kill David. He tries to murder, or doesn't really try to murder him directly yet, but he tries to marry him off so maybe the Philistines will kill him. He does all these things to try to get David into peril and David succeeds at all of these tasks. So finally it comes to a dinner party. And Saul says, I'm going to invite David. I'm going to have my son Jonathan actually lure him to this, this dinner party. And there I'm going to do the deed officially. We're going to get rid of David. And now if you know Jonathan, Jonathan is David's best friend. Basically as close to a brother to David as you can be. And so Jonathan is then put in a very difficult situation. Right? You have Saul, his dad, his king, asking him to do something he's not comfortable doing. And then you have David, his best friend, who was hiding, who was being oppressed, who was fearing for his life. And what does he have to do to try to protect his brother? Okay, and so we're going to enter into the story here where, where Jonathan covers up for David. When Saul says, hey, Jonathan, where is David? Why isn't he at this dinner party? Jonathan deceives Saul and covers and protects his brother. And that leads us into Saul's response. Because Saul's response here is often the response of a toxic loyalty culture. And then we're going to look at Jonathan's response and how we can learn from that. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to start in verses 30 through 31. We're going to go through uh, 34 today. So you can follow along with me. So when Jonathan decides to cover, protect David, this is Saul's response. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of perversity and rebellion. That's a, it looks a little different in some translations. Some say you're a, you're a, you know, he kind of insults his mother, right? You, you son of a perverse woman, right? But that idea of woman isn't actually there. A lot of uh, Hebrew scholars are saying it's really more you son of perversity and rebellion. It's a, it's a pretty mean insult in Hebrew. <laughs> it's pretty bad. You son of perversity and rebellion, 
Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? What would your mother think, Jonathan? Every day, Jesse's son lives on earth and your kingship is no longer secure. Because you did this, I can't promise you the throne, Jonathan. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Saul's a little upset with David or Jonathan's protection of David. And these first couple of verses here, we see some signs and symptoms of what we should be attentive to in loyalty cultures within our church communities and within communities at large, because this happens not only in churches, but organizations, institutions, all of these types of things. What happens when we try to protect the oppressed? What happens when we try to, to be a voice for those who don't have a voice and we're met with Saul's responses? So these are the symptoms and signs of a community and a culture that might be in a loyalty-type culture. The first one you'll often see is proof-texting scripture to keep people loyal. Proof-texting is when you pluck a, a passage out of scripture and you use it however you want to use it. No context. You kind of make it sound however you, wanted, however you need it to make it sound for that situation. This happens a lot. And this is why good Bible study, good interpretation, what we call hermeneutics, in theology circles is very important because the Bible can be used as a weapon and it can be used as a weapon for the wrong reasons, for disgrace, for shame, for those who are wielding it. And it can be very divisive and destructive to a community when wielded this way. And what Saul says here, he says, you son of perversity and rebellion. Right? That's what he means by this, you son of perversity and rebellion. He is saying, you are rebelling against your king, Jonathan. You're rebelling against your father, Jonathan. Right? This is putting Jonathan in a very difficult situation. Here he is trying to protect his brother, his best friend from an oppressive king, but happens to be his father. And so he's talking about Jonathan rebelling against his king, which would have been normally that you know Saul is the anointed one of Israel, right? There's a reason why why David doesn't even kill him in the cave later in this story, right? When he has a chance to, because he is the one that God chose to rule Israel at this moment. And so so Saul is going to try to use his power and his ability to try to persuade and demean Jonathan into doing what he wants him to do, to manipulate him into what he wants him to do. So have you ever been in, in Jonathan's shoes before where here you are stuck in the middle between two individuals or two situations where you feel like I don't know where to choose my loyalty who do I side with who do I protect who do I not protect how do I handle these situations and he goes on to say what kind of rebellion was it well it's to your shame and disgrace of your mother just shame and disgrace of your mother this is a a direct connection to the fifth commandment this is the honor your father and mother commandment so here's Saul trying to wield the fifth commandment. The one that Paul says is the only one that comes with promise in his letters. He says he's wielding this commandment to say, hey, you're breaking the law of God by not doing what I'm telling you to do. You see how this is a proof text of scripture that Saul is using here to try to prove his point. Do you think God wanted David dead? Absolutely not. Saul did because he was jealous and angry and afraid and he tried to control the situation by using the fifth commandment to sway Jonathan's loyalty to him so that David could be killed. 
This is a classic case of proof texting when they take, he takes a, really we take the scripture out and we say this is what it means, but we detach it from the heart of God, from the character of God, from what God's will is and his love is and who he is as, a, as, a, as our loving God. You know, churches that proof text scripture to control people, they have a word for it, it's called spiritual manipulation. Spiritual manipulation. So what happens is pastors or leaders in the church will often say, I have this, I want this done. And so they will take some kind of a passage out and use it as a weapon to try to manipulate control and get the way, get their way with it. You know, Jonathan was just trying to protect his brother from being wrongfully murdered, which was Tove. That's all Jonathan was trying to do. I want to protect my brother, my best friend, from being murdered and oppressed by my father. That was a Tove thing to do. His father and king wanted to spiritually manipulate him into doing something counter to God's will. This is something that is a symptom and a sign of loyalty culture. And one example that I've seen over the years in working with churches and struggling with with the idea of how do we become Tove is they use the word disloyal and they'll read off passages like Hebrews 13, 17. So this has been you. I'm sorry, this is not how this passage was ever supposed to be used. But this is what Hebrews 13 said. This is an example of what this might look like. They might say to you, hey, you need to be loyal to us, the cause. We are your leaders. And they recite Hebrews 13, 7. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. I've had this happen to me before. Obey your leaders and submit to them. See, that's what it says. Therefore, you need to get in line about how we see things, what we want to see done here the problem is, if you keep reading, since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, they forget the part where they have to give an account to their conduct about the Lord's people. They love the first part. Hey, obey and submit to us. We are leaders. We're, you have to be loyal to your leaders, to your institution, your organization, your church, whatever that might be. What Hebrews is really saying is, hey, make it easier for them because they have to give an account to how they conduct themselves as well. And so a lot of times what happens is that verse is wielded as a, in a loyalty culture to try to keep people in line, keep them loyal, keep them directed to how leaders or institutions want them to go. We cannot be a tove church, a good church, and wield the word of God as a tool to try to manipulate people into doing something that we want them to do despite what, they, what we think they want to do. You know, we're going to learn here in a minute just how Jonathan responds. But if you've ever been in this situation, you know how absolutely brutal it is. The sleepless nights, the difficulties, the hardships of figuring out I'm stuck in a position where you just feel like no option is right. No option is good. The scriptures are being thrown at you. You just feel kind of paralyzed. The second symptom is a loyalty is demanded and enforced with threats or manipulation. Loyalty is demanded and enforced with threats or manipulation. Look how Saul uses this against, against Jonathan. He says, every day Jesse's son lives. He's like, you know, every day David's alive here on earth. Your kingship is not secure. Your future is not secure as long as this is happening, Jonathan. You know, in, in the times of, of the ancient Near East, when a new king rose to power, a lot of times the entire family was killed. And so Saul is going to try to use that for his benefit. He's going to say, hey, if David gets in power and he becomes the king, I can't promise you that you and your sisters are going to survive. I can't promise you that, that, they're going to, that David won't kill them all. 
because that was very custom in that ancient Near Eastern culture to do, to wipe out the entire bloodline of the prior kings. So he's trying to scare and demand loyalty from Jonathan. Imagine again being in Jonathan's shoes and you're hearing this and you know exactly like, yeah, that's, that could happen. But he's trusting that he knows his brother David. He's trusting he knows his best friend David. Saul was trying to manipulate again by trying to give Jonathan the fear of losing something important. You know, this, this has a lot of different applications within a church context. This could be, hey, if you don't show your loyalty to us, we'll remove you from serving. We'll take that opportunity away. You know, I know pastors who, fantastic preachers, great people who, who, who understand the word better than anybody I've ever met. And they just show disloyalty and remove from the pulpit for years because they wouldn't show loyalty to a particular leader. The loyalty is often demanded and then enforced with threats of manipulation. Do you show your loyalty to us now or I can't promise you what we'll do to you in the future. We can't promise you what will happen in the future. Same as Saul does to Jonathan here. The third one is often loyalty comes at the cost of your own integrity. This is an important one. Loyalty often comes at the cost of your own integrity. Jonathan here is struggling to comprehend exactly how he's going to respond, isn't he? Right? At one point, he knows God's law. He knows who God is. And he's realizing this doesn't sit right with who we worship. And he's trying to, to wrestle this idea of, of king and father demanding these things of him, demanding his loyalty for the purpose of killing somebody of innocence. And at the same time, he's trying to wrestle with his integrity, going, how do I bring about the freedom for my brother? How do I protect my brother without being killed by my king? Saul says to him, now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. So that there he has to make a decision. How will I respond? Do I respond with loyalty to my father and king who wants to kill my brother? Or do I follow my integrity? I think this is probably the one, if you've ever been in the situation, that hurts the most. This is the one, when, when I look back on my own experiences, the one that really was the hardest one to, to grapple with because it feels so icky. You just feel so gross trying to, because you want to, to bring, a lot of times you're, you're being asked by somebody you really love and care about to show loyalty to. I think Jonathan really loved his father Saul. And he really wanted to make him happy. He really wanted to please him. But at the same time, your integrity, the things you care about, the values you have are being questioned. And you know that it goes against that. And that's a horrible place to be. And if it's in a church community in particular, it's extremely toxic and paralyzing within the community. This one is a a rough one. When you have to try to decide, do I follow the integrity? Do I follow the things that God wants me to do? Or do I follow... The, the demands of this person I also want to stay loyal to but have a hard time doing so. It destroys relationships within church, divides families, it builds walls where there needs to be communication. This type of do it or get out. Do it against your integrity type of mentality. And, and one thing that I, I do, um, I was going to actually bring a bowl of jello up here but I thought that would have been very messy. Um, but what I'll often, and I learned this from a counselor, I thought it was really good, and I've had a few conversations with people who, leaders who have been in, who kind of have inadvertently created loyalty cultures, is what happens is a, a person in, is, who has power, whether it be a leader, a manager, even a, a group of people leading a church or what might not be, or whatnot, what they do is they need to remember how to hold jello. 
So if you ever hold a, a jello in your hands, the, the more loose you hold on to it, the more it stays together. Right? So if I was holding a thing of jello here, if I was holding it real loosely, it would stay, it would form, it would wiggle, it would do as what you needed it to do. But what happens in loyalty cultures is leaders, they tend to start grasping at it. And they close their hands over it, trying to control it, manipulate it, demand it to do what it needs it to be. And the jello starts to break apart and fall through their fingers. Right? This is what loyalty culture does. What they're trying to do, and a lot of times, is they're trying to control and manipulate and use their power to adhere things together. I mean, that's what most of the pastors I've worked with are trying to keep the church together. But they're doing it through loyalty, not through tov. And what they're trying to do is keep things together, but really the reality is they're breaking everything apart. They're destroying when they're trying to create. They're, they're working against themselves. I call them their own worst enemies when they're doing that because they're destroying the thing that they were so hoping to create. And so when we, we talk about a community of Tov, we're talking about a people who hold each other with care, hold each other loosely. You know, the good thing with Pullman culture is that people move in and out of this place pretty normally. I don't think see anybody get too, too scared of people leaving and moving away. It seems a part of it. But where I came out of Utah, that was pretty rare. We were the destination place. That's where people were moving to. So when people left, you saw leaders really become, become, become sick because they were so afraid of losing things that they started to crush the thing that they were trying to create. So think of Jello. If Saul would have cared more about Jonathan would have cared more about David, would have cared more about holding things loose like his anger and his wrath and his vengeance and the things that he cared about, his jealousy, I'm betting that things would have turned out a lot different for Saul and probably a lot different for Israel. So Jonathan had to make a choice. He was told he was doing what was counter to God's will. Not something fun to hear from your king and your dad. He was told that kingship was at risk. My future is at risk. Again, not a, a fun thing to hear. He has been put into a position where he must choose loyalty to king or to father or his integrity or his best friend. Again, a very hard situation to be in. These are the markings of a cult more than they are of a community of God. Okay? These, are, these are not things that the kingdom of God, people who represent Jesus, should be affiliated with are these types of situations. These are not things that reflect our Lord. And Jonathan does something very tov. He refuses to be loyal to Saul. He refuses to be loyal to Saul. In verses 31 through 34, this is Jonathan's response. He answers his father back, why is he to be killed? What has he done? And Saul says nothing. He said, Saul throws a spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. I'd say that'll do it. He got up from the table fiercely angry. This is Jonathan. He got up from the table fiercely angry and did not eat any food that second day of the new moon. He was so grieved because of his father's shameful behavior toward David. So here is Jonathan standing up for, for David. And this is often what happens when people start standing up for people who are oppressed and voiceless. Saul throws a spear at him. You know, as, a, as, someone, who, you know, as, a, as someone who represents Jesus, you are called to do that. You, not to throw spears at people. <laughs> That was poor context. <laughs> Sorry, still waking up. You are called to be a voice for the voiceless. You are called to be a voice for the oppressed. You are called to question, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? Tell me the reasons what this person has done wrong. Why are they being outcasted? Why are they being thrown out? Why are, 
Ask a lot of whys, like Jonathan asks, in these situations. And what will happen a lot of times when you do that, you will invoke some type of wrath within a loyalty culture. The loyalty of whoever has the power in that situation will often be evoked when you don't show the loyalty to them or to their desires. But then when you stand up for those who are oppressed or voiceless or for standing up for your own integrity will often evoke anger. Again, it's a symptom and sign of, of a sick culture. Jonathan's loyalty to David was more than just him picking sides. It was really what the Bible calls doing righteousness and doing justice. In that moment, Jonathan did something that the Bible talks about is doing righteousness and doing justice. Jeremiah 22.3 says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Do what is just. Mishpat. Say that in Hebrew. Mishpat. And write tzedakah. Mishpat and tzedakah. You got to say it like that too. Tzedakah. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong of violence to the foreign or the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. What Jonathan is choosing to do in this situation is not to bend his knee to the powers that will bring oppression, corruption, and death, but to stand up against them, to protect his brother. Therefore, he is doing mishpat and doing sedekah. He is being the voice for those who have no voice. He is being the one who protects those who are being oppressed and chased down. This is the call for God's community to be and to do and to reflect is Mishpat and Sedekah. Jonathan stood up, invoking the anger of his king, and it grieved him deeply. Didn't eat. He was very sad, very broken, very traumatized probably through the entire experience. I don't know how you live through your father throwing his spear at you and not become a little traumatized by that. In that moment, he had the power. He could have said, you know, you're right. I'm going to honor Saul. I'm going to... Bring David in, and we're just going to get this whole thing over with. But he doesn't. He chose to do what was just. He chose to do what was right, and it costed him dearly. The goodness of God displayed through the church does not coexist where toxic loyalty culture reigns. In fact, it does the opposite. It does mishpat and sedekah. It is found in what is just doing the right thing at the right time. How do we choose to do the right thing at the right time? How do we do mishpat? You know, a mishpat in, in English is often translated as justice. That's how you'll often hear it. Mishpat is translated justice. Or you ever heard of a judge in Israel? A judge in Israel was a ruler or a ruler, someone who had power in Israel. Don't think of the, the guys in the white wigs with a gavel, right? That's not really what we're thinking about in Hebrew here. We're thinking of someone who has a, who was a leader, had power within Israel, right? And so when you think about how Israel's prophets are speaking to judges, things like Micah 6, 8, do what is mishpat, do what is justice, seek justice, right? That is a command of the prophets to the judges and the rulers and leaders within Israel. And mishpat really has a unique meaning. So it can mean, you know, if you Rob a vendor, you're going to go to jail. That's mishpat. You know, you're reaping what you're sowing. There's a mishpat there as well. But there's a deeper understanding of mishpat in Hebrew that I think we miss out on a lot. And it's a visual that is really neat. So imagine, you know, I'm up here on this stage. Mishpat is actually reaching down to those who are below and pulling them up to your level, putting them on equal stance. 
reaching down and bringing them up and putting them out. It's those who are oppressed and forgotten about, who are, who are down low, made low, and he's bringing them up. That's mishpat. That's the visualization you think of mishpat, is reaching down, someone who has power, reaching them up and giving them equality, giving them fairness, a voice, whatever that might be. It's bringing in what's called tzedakah, justice or righteousness. They are now in right standing. Their, their injustice is down there because they're oppressed. They're hurting. You think of Israel and, and Egypt being suffering at the hands of Pharaoh. What God did is he brought mishpat. He came and, and brought them up and poured out his righteousness. He made them in right standing with him. Okay, These are all what mishpat and tzedakah are talking about here. Loyalty culture doesn't exist where people choose mishpat. Because people are attentive to how we are listening to the oppressed. How we are reaching down to those who have no voice and bringing them into the conversation. Who are bringing them down, who are broken and hurting and ostracized. And we're bringing them into the conversation. We're bringing them into the community rather than siding with loyalty, which might push them away. Which might push them away. One of the things, I don't know if you guys ever heard of Rachel Den Hollander. You guys ever heard that voice sound familiar? Or that name? So she was a, a gymnast who was a, a, one of the, the big voices for the women who were sexually abused by the gymnast coaches over the years. And she testified against, I don't remember his name exactly. Yeah, whatever it was over here, I heard it. Um, and um, she was a voice for that, and she, you know, she showed radical godly forgiveness to him, which was amazing to hear. But she is a, a voice for that type of a thing about sexual abuse, and it was, it was a highly important voice in the, in the um, fixing of the gymnastic world. But the problem was, was, was she was also a voice for sexual abuse in churches. And guess what the churches that she was a part of did? They kicked her out. So she was trying to be a voice for those who had no voice for the victims and the abused and the oppressed within those areas within her church circle what happened was they showed loyalty to the leadership rather than to the victims, and they kicked Rachel out of their churches. That is what a loyalty culture can do. That's what a toxic loyalty culture looks like, is when somebody comes up and says, I'm trying to voice out that there's something wrong here, there's something broken here. Those who are victims and the oppressed, they don't have a voice, they're being shunned, they're being silenced. And mishpat is when Rachel Denner came and tried to bring attention to that. That was she was reaching down, trying to pull them up into the conversation. That's what we're trying to resist as a culture that tries to protect people who need to see justice done. The churches need to pursue what is just and right over loyalty. So we are always looking for those who have been mistreated. We are always looking for those who are oppressed or silenced, who do not have a voice. And if you read James 1, if the whole book of James really talks a lot about this, but James 1.27, he says this, pure and undefiled religion, the thing you do out of religion, thing you do over and over again, your, your religiosity should be this before God, look after the or- orphans and the widows. Look after the, the lowest of low, those who don't have anybody else. Look out for those who don't have a voice. Look out for those who are kind of in the lower spectrum of our societies. Use your power to look after them, is what he's calling the church to do in their distress, and keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, Jesus and James, in, in, the, in the first century, if you lost one parent, you were considered an orphan. 
especially your father. So you didn't have to lose two parents in this time. You had to just lose one, especially your father. So if you imagine Joseph, who likely passed away when the kids were young, they would have lived an orphaned lifestyle according to the standards of his time. So you can imagine James and Jesus, James is Jesus' brother, if you guys didn't know that, okay? Living a life where the widow and the orphan would have been sincerely close to them, where they would have been shown great sympathy and empathy in their lives to be able to see the hurting and the suffering that those people are going through and be able to sympathize and empathize with them. You know, the mishpat of justice, of, of looking out for the widows and the orphans is exactly what we've been called to do as people who reflect Jesus. As he cared for the widows and the orphans, as the church in the first century cared for the widows and the orphans, who are our widows and orphans today? We have those within our community, but we also have so many other people who suffer and are broken and oppressed in this world. David was oppressed by Saul and Jonathan voiced up, protected him and chose justice over loyalty. Loyalty to a father and loyalty to a king that could have gotten him killed. But he chose to show mishpat instead. And most importantly, as we look at who Jesus was, Jesus is God's mishpat in Zedekah. You think about God looking, standing up in that visualization I was showing you, the imagery of mishpat, seeing his world broken and oppressed, where sin has darkened it to almost unrecognizable ways. You know, it doesn't take long to turn on the news and see the effects of sin in our world. The effects of anger and jealousy and wrath and all the things that Saul was in that story. But what God did is he didn't just leave us to suffer in our sin. No, he sent his son to mishpat. When Jesus came, it was a mishpat into our world. That he would bring about a tzedakah, a right standing with God once again through Jesus. That when we think about what Jesus came to do, when we think about the cross, we're not thinking about necessarily God's wrath, but we're thinking about his love for his creation, that he would reach down, become flesh, to bring about a restored relationship with him and his people again. What Jesus did was mishpat, to bring righteousness and sedekah. Therefore, we can stand in right standing with God because of Jesus. Because Jesus willingly chose to stay loyal to his Father in heaven. To go to the cross before us, for the sake of us, with us in our hearts, with us in his heart and mind, and said, I'm going to bring them up. I am going to hear their cries. I am going to bring about the end of sin and death in their life, and they will have freedom and life restored through him. Jesus came for the oppressed. He came for the, the voiceless. He came for the sinner. Remember, the sinner is one who understands that they are, they are a sinner. And they understand that their need greatly for mishpat, to be lifted up, to be brought up, to be brought close into God's sedekah, his right standing. He was the only one who could reach down. He's the only one we have to grab hold of. That hand that comes down is the only one we have to grab hold of when it comes to God's mishpat and sedekah. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.